Hey guys, my name is Alex, and you're listening to the Thousand Movie Project Podcast. Last night, after leaving the bar, I stopped at my favorite Mexican restaurant to get my favorite meal, which is a chicken quesadilla, as I think I've discussed in the past. And while eating that quesadilla over the next 15 or 20 minutes, I started thinking critically about the pornography that I occasionally consume. And the easy transition here, it's a little too easy, so I'm not going to do it, would be to say like, oh, the meal was so delicious, it was a sexual experience. I only, I don't, I skip breakfast. I don't do breakfast. I tend to only eat two meals a day. Also, I don't keep any food in my apartment at all. So I tend to eat out a lot, which I guess is another way that this could be a bridge to my quesadilla is just, oh, I'm eating out all the time. But no, it's the fact that despite Despite the fact of my eating so sparingly, and despite the fact that I tend to eat small portions, I am still gaining weight. Not a ton of weight, and I've still got a generally... Slim figure. But if you slap my torso, I ripple, or my body ripples. Well, it's record scratch. Pause for a second. Two things come to mind when I face that conundrum of like, do I say I ripple or my body ripples? First one that comes to mind is Susan Sontag. It ended up becoming the the title of the second volume of Susan Sontag's Diaries, which was her line about how the soul is harnessed to the flesh. And I think she wrote that when she was going through one of her bouts with cancer. But then the other thing that comes to mind is Christopher Hitchens' final memoir, also written during a bout with cancer, in which he says, I'm going through this chemotherapy, and it's showing me that I don't just have a body, I am a body. And if the body is in distress, my thoughts are in distress. If my body is healthy, then my mind is sharp and my thoughts are clear and I'm less inclined to fall into these sort of nihilistic spirals. The reason I'm thinking about porn and quesadillas together is because whenever I do get hungry, since I don't have anything in the apartment, and I, even if I'm craving something simple and quick and delicious and convenient, I go to this Mexican place that's just a few doors down and I get a $10 chicken quesadilla. And the same thing happens with porn. If I get the itch, I scratch it. And this, and I'm not doing this as like a conversation about the gluttony, some kind of sexual gluttony that comes from having such a bounty of porn at my immediate disposal, but I do think that there is something similarly pernicious about having these things just here at my disposal. The fact that I can consult an Alexandrian library of smut on a whim, and then this burdensome and distracting arousal will be dealt with and I can get on with my work, which sounds very bah and humbug. Dickens doesn't really talk about this, although given his namesake, he kind of should, but I would be, I think you could extrapolate that Ebenezer Scrooge was probably bothered by erections. Although speaking of porn and uh, Mexican food and Ebenezer Scrooge, I don't know if he was if he was right in his assessment, but I was struck recently in, in hearing an interview with the novelist James Elroy, and he was talking about J. Edgar Hoover, who was like the paranoid civil liberty squashing FBI director of the 1950s and 60s. He said that J. Edgar Hoover was not a transvestite, as many people believe, but that he was a celibate 
gay man who was married and who channeled his sexual self-loathing into a, a constant, unrelenting effort at violating other people's privacy. Because you can see like a definite sexual dimension to his obsessive wiretapping and eavesdropping. And that basically this is what fueled his effort to ruin people's lives and, and or blackmail them in, into some sort of subservient position where they had to do his bidding. Anyway, I mentioned in a previous episode, back to the subject of porn, that I went through Pornhub.com's fascinating annual data dump recently, and I saw that 160 years of footage was uploaded to that website in 2019 alone. And since that number of hours goes up every year, I think it's safe to extrapolate that there is literally millennia of porn footage on the internet. And it made me think about my chicken quesadilla because despite the fact that my apartment is fumigated and I wear sunblock and Christian jewelry, I still have vegans in my life and vegetarians, and they tell me all the time, unprompted, about the horrors of factory farming with its steroidal chickens and its one-armed slave labor. It can sound a little comedic sometimes to take inventory of all the micro horrors within the macro horror that is factory farming because they're so fucking outlandish, but they're all fucking true. I had a professor who used to cite one of his professors when he would talk about what he called hyper objects. And a hyper object is something, it's usually an atrocity or some kind of catastrophe that's just too huge for you to maybe encompass even intellectually in a lifetime of study. And you certainly cannot encompass it respectfully and fully in the course of a simple everyday situation. So the Holocaust is a hyper-object, global warming is a hyper-object, these things are so multifaceted, and the immensity of them, the impossibility of ever really grappling in full with like the scope of its horrors is the reason why we tend to just get sort of cheeky about it like Meh, steroid chickens Meh. anyway what the chicken brings to mind is the idea and this is with respect to the porno too is that there's probably something inherently sinister in any sort of colossally huge production the fact that i can get fresh chicken from literally six different places in a two-block radius, the fact that you can do the same thing if you're living in an urban area like I am suggests that probably an unconscionable number of chickens had to die for that convenience, and they had to die violently, and they had to die quickly, and with zero consideration of their pain, because how else could these distributors meet that kind of demand? A couple years ago, there was a fucking huge drama on Pornhub because, as the New York Times reported, it was infested with videos depicting uh, underage sex and sexual abuse, and also there was a rampant problem with revenge porn, which is like you and your partner, you know, record a sex tape or trade nudes and it's just supposed to be between the two of you, but then you guys break up and the scorned lover posts that shit on the internet to try to humiliate you, get you fired. But so, in a sweeping action, to prevent that shit from proliferating, Pornhub deleted 80% of its content. An estimated 10 million videos. It deleted all videos that were not uploaded by, like, verifiably professional performers or Pornhub-affiliated amateur performers. If you'll pardon the pun here, I think it was cool that Pornhub kinda cracked the whip by saying to its users, in essence, that, th that internet pornography is no longer the Wild West. The days of LimeWire and Kazaa 
are over. No longer shall you be led to believe that you're getting a Jenna Jameson gangbang video, spend 19 hours downloading it, open the file, and find footage of a monkey jerking off with a frog, which, yes, happened to me. Rashida Jones produced a great documentary, I think it was in like 2015, 2016, called Hot Girls Wanted. And it shows how young women, particularly in Miami, are manipulated into performing for these online porn producers. And they promise quick cash and, you know, beautiful photos of you that you'll be able to appreciate. You're going to look good. You're going to look hot. But they're taking advantage of the fact that a young person who's never seen so much money is not really going to be thinking about the ramifications, the long-term ramifications of participating in this kind of industry, nor are they going to be mindful of the myriad ways in which they're being exploited. The documentary wasn't anti-kink or sex negative, but it showed that when it comes to pornography, sex is a business. And it emphasized the fact that in the video, you know, that you're getting off to, in which a woman is getting choked or spat or pissed on, they're not doing it because they enjoy it. They are performing their arousal. They are doing this shit for money. And when people are doing something in order to make enough money to survive, they don't always do things that they feel comfortable with. I still look at porn now and then, not nearly as often as I eat chicken, but, I, but I'm thinking now that in both cases, I'm availing myself of these pleasures with such leisure and so little consideration for the invisible cost of them that it's kind of desensitizing me. I'm looking past the weight of their existence. And in a way, it's making me numb. Not numb in the sense of like, okay, now it takes a bunch of crazy shit to turn me on. Not numb in the fact that like, now I need a huge amount of chicken in order to be fulfilled. Just numb to the fact that like, this means someone sheds sweat and time for this. My friend Danny was one of the million people in America who decided to make a loaf of bread from scratch during the early weeks of quarantine in 2020. And I had to make him stop talking when he was describing the process to me because it takes like three people and a horse and a lot of black magic to make a loaf of bread from scratch. It's literally like a three-day affair. Meanwhile, I've been spending my whole life walking through grocery stores, looking at all this fucking bread, never questioning if the, the shelves of bread will be filled next time I'm, I'm there. Nor had it ever occurred to me that like, whenever I'm reading a book that it was either written in or takes place in the pre-industrial era, and someone talks about getting a loaf of bread, they're basically talking about like a precious gem, because the shit was just really fucking difficult to make. I heard a business lecture one time where a few different companies were cited to sort of show their business practices like that. It was the lecture where I learned that JetBlue is the only commercial airline in America that has never filed for bankruptcy. I learned that the bad parking at Trader Joe's is part of their business model because if from the road you constantly see that the parking lot is full and chaotic, well, for one thing, a crowd attracts a crowd because people assume that something great is going on in there. Something that Trader Joe's and uh, the clothing store Zara have in common, have built into their business model, is they both want to have sparsely furnished racks or shelves, and they want it to be the case that with many of their items, you cannot get it twice. Or that if you did get it as something at Trader Joe's and you liked it, you won't be able to get it again for a couple months. Because when you go there and you can't find the thing that you just tried and liked, it sparks an engagement with the staff. You walk into Trader Joe's, you throw your lasso around a clerk, and you say, you guys had a jelly bean sauerkraut last week and now I can't find it. And then the clerk smiles and says to you, sorry sir, we're temp temporarily out of jelly bean sauerkraut, but if you liked the jelly bean sauerkraut, 
maybe you'd like to experiment with this other product. It's called arsenic. Basically, the, the, the business model idea is that of that is it gets people out of their comfort zone, gets them, it gets them trying new things, and it gets them, you know, to establish a rapport with the staff. The novelist John Updike grew up in the 1930s in a household with adults who had clawed their way through the Great Depression, and he said that the household was governed by, like, the prime Depression-era sentiment. The idea that it does you good to go without. Which also brings to mind uh, an opening chapter in Jonathan Safran Foer's nonfiction book, Eating Animals, where he talks about um, growing up with his grandmother, who had survived the Holocaust, and she would say to him, do you know how many cups of tea you can get out of boiling a single tea bag? And he said, no, Grandma, how much? And she said, as many as you need. I was telling myself today, um, walking back from the coffee shop, that if I ever became a millionaire and I could afford a personal chef and all the necessary ingredients, I would probably happily become a weekday vegan. And then I would allow myself like a chicken quesadilla or a pepperoni pizza on the weekends. Now, the fact of the matter is, I probably don't actually need to wait until I'm wealthy, in the, not to suggest I'm ever gonna become wealthy, in order to do those things, but, here is another sort of half-baked epiphany that I've had. The only thing easier than indulging my spontaneous lust for porn or indulging a spontaneous craving for chicken quesadillas is my habit of indulging the far more common idea, which is that someday, when the circumstances are convenient, I will make the obvious steps to become a better person. Okay, this is a quick coda, because I have a feeling, in editing the episode, I get a feeling that, like, somewhere between talking about porno and quesadillas and Ebenezer Scrooge, I didn't really make my point. It's such a belabored thing, but I just, I, I just came to it in, like, my own circuitous way, which is, like, the older I get and the more I learn about the world that I inhabit, the more I realize that it's, like, a fucking world of convenience. And yes, my daily life, like your daily life, like everyone's daily life, is fucking laden with inconveniences. You have to make a phone call to a doctor's office or just what, traffic delays and detours. But of course, then there are the conveniences that we all know we overlook. The fact that fast food exists. You can get a hot meal whenever the fuck you want and it's cheap. The fact that you don't have to make your own clothes by hand, that you don't have to wash your own clothes by hand. The fact that there is a road and a car that can get you to work in minutes. But then you, you get a better sense of the world that you inhabit and you realize like pretty much all of those major institutional society, everyday societal conveniences are like soaked in blood at the roots of that giving tree. And you just wonder about your own moral implication in the atrocities that perpetuate those things. Like, I was thinking about that scandal, it's a few weeks old already, of, remember, like, the green M&M, the, like, the sexy one. The way that they were characterized in those commercials where it's like, the yellow one is an imbecile, and the red one is kind of like the Joe Pesci who's aggressive and has ideas for get-rich-quick kind of... Am I projecting this? Was any of this ever characterized? Whatever the case, the green one was always, like, supposed to be kind of a 1940s femme fatale, like long-legged with huge curling eyelashes and like big lips and spoke in, in, in a sort of sultry way. Well, fucking Mars, like of Mars Bar, the Mars Chocolate Candy Company said that they were rebranding the green M&M so that she isn't so eminently fuckable, I guess. For a modern world, they're just gonna sort of desexualize the piece of candy. And of course, this was like a huge talking point in right-wing media, 
oh, how dare they tell me I can't masturbate to the candy. It's a fucking distraction, though. The reason that Mars launched that publicity thing of, like, we are gonna render woke the depiction of the green M&M. They were doing that because they are now on trial for child slave labor. And so if you go and you Google like Mars Bar Company, instead of the first thing coming up like, oh, slave labor, child slave labor went into your M&Ms, fucking the first 10 pages are going to be about the fact that Tucker Carlson is really upset because he wanted to fuck that candy. And I'm just like, okay, should I not eat Mars products anymore? Like, am I doing anything by not eating the Mars products? I don't know. Obviously, this is like something that everyone has to contend with at some point in their life. Most likely, you contended with this when you were younger. <laughs> like, I don't think this is something 30-year-olds are like, hey, wait a minute. Like, I think I'm kind of slow in getting to this point. Whatever the case, that's where I was coming from. Thanks for listening. Sorry I do this to you.